Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina, who do we have today? Today we are going all out with war, ladies and gents. Our guest is a historian, a writer and a broadcaster. He is also a war studies professor at the University of Southern Denmark and a fellow of LSE. LSE, for people who don't know, is the London School of Economics. He also presents the Untold History series on Dan Snow's History Hit, which I'm now, I'm going to have to watch that now. But I think we can make a whole separate podcast about James Rogers because he has a seriously cool CV. But anyways. Welcome to our podcast, James. Thanks for having me on. Oh, how is lockdown in Denmark? Um, I mean, pretty pretty dull, um, <laughs> as lockdown is in most places, I think. Uh, but the Danes, they managed to kind of uh, um, really kind of track onto things quite quickly and impose a lockdown quite quickly. So uh, they're even talking about coming out of the lockdown soon. So it's uh, yeah, it's a strange one compared to everywhere else in the world. I think they the are. idea of coming off of lockdown is great, but not if everybody then gets sick. So it's a hard, hard choice to make, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think they're talking about things like um, because the the Danish were so effective in their in their lockdown, and there wasn't a sufficient amount of the of the virus to spread. So yeah. I mean, I'd, I I am in no way a scientist, so I uh, I can't comment on these things. But that's um, the thing, yeah. isn't it? We strange times. Yeah, grimly. Everybody still needed a certain percentage of people to be getting sick, didn't they, to wear this thing out. So if perhaps if you stopped everyone getting sick, it means you have a whole different set of problems to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, I, I don't relish the challenge of future historians trying to tell this story. No, well, they can listen to our podcast because we waffle about stuff and then we get on to the actual business of history, don't we, Alina? You gave us a list of weapons that changed the world, and I really think we should go from the oldest and work our way to the most modern. So let's start with the arrow. Tell us, when was it invented? Right, okay, well, that's a point of some contention. Um, so there's some who say it can go back to around 6,000 years ago, to the Neolithic period, but recent archaeological studies have started to show that actually we can take the history of the arrow Far, far, far further back into, um, into actually probably around 64,000 years ago. There's researchers at the University of, uh, Witzwaterland who have been doing archaeological digs in some of the, um, Sivadu caves in what is now modern day South Africa. And what they found in there is, is fascinating. They, 
they they went through the sediment and they started to pull out these these sharp small bits of of rock and these were methodologically crafted you could tell they'd been chipped away into stone points and what they did was they took them back to their labs and they analyzed them under microscopes and they found that they also on the very ends had a natural adhesive the glue on them indicating that they'd been attached to a, a kind of light wooden shaft and they'd even found in the stone themselves um, fragments of bone and of blood showing that these projectiles had been thrust into flesh so really we can take this back all this time 64,000 years ago and we can start to see that humans were thinking about killing in a really technologically advanced way and this may not seem important but by redefining the origins of the arrow by somewhat tenfold times in history we can start to see that humans had different motives for killing they had the technological ability to make these weapon systems it tells us how advanced they were but it also starts to show us that humans were interestingly and perhaps disturbingly distancing themselves from the visceral heat of battle from killing face to face um, looking your opponent in the eye instead they were killing from greater distance and I suppose for me, this is what fascinates me about the history of weapons in general, is that weapons provide us with a glimpse into the motivations of a society, the technological ability of that society, the values of that society perhaps, and the enemies that they were trying to take out. Weapons are in essence a kind of fingerprint of a society and its culture. I, do you know what? I'm just amazed that the arrow, 64,000 years... Wow. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Yeah. That's nearly as old as Peter Hart. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love you, you old goat, if you're listening. I'm going to make sure he listens to it now. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to know, um, well, I've got a side question to actually what we we're going to ask. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it was made from? Because I've done a couple of Neolithic digs myself. And we found quite a lot of worked flint and, uh, well, that's what our, ours, the, the, our, our, my God, our, Yeah, you got a tongue twister there. (laughs) Our arrows, got there in the end, were made from. Um, So is there anything else apart from flint that they were made from? Uh, it depends on the, the kind of geographical location in, in which you're digging, as, you, as you'll know. Um, but yeah, flint, uh, anything that kind of can be struck in that way to make a, a severe point on the end. Um, if you look at some of the early documented massacres and genocides, they've found uh, arrowheads made of things like jet black obsidian and things like that. So yeah, it really depends on, on, on what you could get hold of. Wow. Um, another question. How long, how long were arrows actually useful in history? I mean, they're still being used today, aren't they? So I, th- mm-hmm. I think we can at least go back 64,000 years. Um, I think probably early on as, as, as hunting implements as well, remember, uh, one of the great feats of human ingenuity is to be able to take down um, animals that are bigger, stronger and faster than themselves by killing them from from great distance but that also is the same for other human beings as well and we can see that as human society has progressed if you can say progressed in inverted commas over the long durée of history there one of the revealing and disturbing trends is that 
although humans are, are sadly pretty good at killing, they've they've pushed themselves further and further away from the people that they are killing. And we've got to think about why that is the case. Is there something cognitive in there? Is there a, a dislike for the idea that you kill another human being? Or is there something even more disturbing? Is it that actually... Um, it's far more pragmatic to kill from distance, especially with things like arrows, because you don't have to fight those that are bigger than you, stronger than you, with an axe or a sword or a, a club. Uh, instead, you can you can kill them quite easily with an arrow. Um, I think, do you know what, when you say it's cognitive, that just brings James McCudden to my mind, who never, only once, so he would never describe an aeroplane he was shooting down as a man, it was always the, I shot down the plane, I brought down mm-hmm. an aircraft. Um, it was never, it was only that flight where he went out in search of the guy with the green tail that had killed his friend, Richard Maybury, that he, that I remember him saying, I killed him, I brought him down, I sent him down in flames. Um, so I think there is something certainly cognitive there about distancing yourself from having inflicted inflicted death um but you then segue in your list which i like this brings us on nicely to it um your next uh civilization defining um weapon that you flagged was a crossbow um so when do we start to see crossbows right well i mean i think this is this is relatively well documented that the crossbow had been around in china since at least the fifth century um when Sun Tzu in The Art of War touches upon energy bound up in the bow and the trigger. Let's not let Alina get onto Sun Tzu in The Art no. of War after down the you pub. Know what? No. I knew you were going to do Be that. Be quiet. I knew you were going to laugh. No I comment just... from you. She was awful. <laughs> he rolled over in his grave for the whole duration of that show. Um, so 5th century. Yeah, so 5th century. But if we're talking about it in kind of the, the use in Europe, then we've probably looked around the, the 12th century as the crossbow began to cause concerns in, in medieval Europe. It was likely brought to Britain during the Norman Conquest, but quickly spread across Europe to become the weapon of choice for continental armies. Um, I mean, the, the, there is one interesting and, and troubling aspect to the crossbow, though, is that it was deemed as the great leveller. It was cheap, it was easy to produce, and it was even easier to use. But more importantly, it was deadly powerful, could be used over a longer range, range, and was deadly accurate as well. And so when you were met with a crossbow on the battlefield, you could take out those highly trained noble knights on horseback. You know, just think how long it would take to train a knight in their, in their shining armour who would be used to, to ride into battle and to mow people down with their swords from, from high above, you know, thr- or thrusting down with a spear. With a crossbow, you could kill off these elites um, with very little training and very little expense. So it was a really quite worrying weapon for European nobles during this period. In fact, it was considered so barbarous that it was banned by Pope Urban II in 1096, and then again by Pope Innocent II uh, during the Catholic Church's um, the, the the second Lateran Council in 1139. I love the irony of Urban uh, banning an inhumane weapon and then launching the First Crusade. Well, and, and, and you've hit on the point here, right? <laughs> yeah. This is exactly it. So the punishment for using one of these weapons was, it, so it was deemed so, it was hateful. It was unfit for God, unfit for Christians. Um, and you could, you could undergo 
excommunication by the Pope if you were found to use it. But there was that important caveat and quite a, a telling caveat, I think. It was acceptable, even encouraged for Europeans to deploy the crossbow against those who weren't the European Christian elites. So you could use it against the, the infidels and the non-believers. That's amazing um, <laughs> and hypocritical. Uh, so what, therefore, what impact, wider impact did it have on the world? Well, I think that from a lot of these weapons in history, you start to learn lessons about how civilizations before you have succeeded and become the dominant power of their time. And I think one thing that the history of weapons shows us is that if you can kill your dis- your, your enemy from even longer distances and not have to risk your your fittest, your most highly trained, usually your, your youngest, your best, your brightest in battle, then your society can, can prosper. And to defeat any highly trained, highly skilled warrior in battle if you can shoot them from greater distances. Um, and, and I suppose this is where we can transition into perhaps one of the most important weapons that's been ever invented, which is the gun. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I think for me, one of the best ways of des- describing the use of the gun comes from a, a French soldier in the in the 16th century who remarked that, that guns were deployed by those who would not dare look in the face those whom they lay down with wretched bullets. Wow. And... <laughs> I think that's a pretty damning critique of the gun, isn't it? Where is the warrior's honour in this situation where you're faced with, well, you're not faced, you're, you're struck down by a, a facelip bullet from, from great distance. And if we explore the history of firearms from kind of the early handgun to the cannons and then to the even more deadly machine gun, it's clear to see that these weapons allow humans to kill with ever greater ease and without this human to human contact. So you kill without ever looking your enemy in the eye. Um, we can go back into a bit of the history of, of these guns. I mean, gunpowder and fire lances, so these spears with pyrotechnics attached, have caused fear in battle since their first use in China in the 10th century, uh, allowing armies to terrorise from a distance. Uh, they even tied like fireworks and, and spears to animals, usually oxen, and sent them in a panic flurry towards their enemy to strike fear into them. Um, But we can jump to the 13th century and we can see how trade with Asia along the Silk Road brought gunpowder to Europe and and, and brought guns into into the ranks of the European and and Ottoman forces. Uh, Early weapons, early guns were were pretty inefficient, dangerous and cumbersome. But by the 16th century, you know, more powerful guns were being produced and they replaced this, this bow and the crossbow as the most powerful distancing weapon. Do you know what? I didn't actually know that's as far back as when guns were actually created. So I've just learned something new. I thought it was more of a, a 16th, 17th century sort of thing. I think that's that's probably fair to, to think that because that's when they start getting pretty effective. Um, and actually, a lot of societies around this time had to make... Um, in fact, even earlier than this, they had to make a choice about whether or not they were going to develop the guns. And, you know, it took a lot of development and a society's ingenuity to actually invest in these weapons and, and make them really effective on the battlefield. And a lot of societies chose not to do this. You know, if you look into you know, ancient Persian societies or across the Islamic North Africa, they didn't welcome guns into their 
nation's arsenal. Uh, or they didn't even choose to buy them from the European continent as they got more and more advanced. An example of this is the, um, the Mamluk Sultanate ruling uh, from Cairo from as early as the 13th century. And this ancient Islamic society considered guns to be out of step with traditional ideas of this warrior's honour. Uh, instead, they put an onus on nobility and skilled training of close combat and the art of war. Uh, if killing, if necessary, had to be done face to face, it had to be done as a last resort. Um, and so they, they chose not to, to, to shoot the gun and the cannon on the battlefield. The trouble is, is that this meant that when they were met by the Ottoman forces on the battlefield, I think it was in uh, 1517, this society, um, who placed their, their morals and values above the adoption of this long-distance weapon, were wiped off the face of the earth. So a lesson here for the next generation is that the society that has the most advanced weapon um, succeeds, whilst those who do not get wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, the impact of the gun uh, on the world has just been just incredible, absolutely incredible. Yeah, and I mean, it even gets, um, I mean, even more impactful on on the cost of human life, at least as we as we move forward into the age of the of the machine gun. Um, I mean, these are fast, accurate, powerful, and the ideal weapons to be used against, once again, against a weaker armed forces without armed defences or mechanised weaponry, a.k.a. those who didn't have the machine gun. And one of the first of these was invented around um, the late 1800s, 1880s, and it was the Maxim gun. Um, named after its American-British inventor, Hiram Stevens Maxim. And this had a rate of fire surpassing 500 rounds a minute. And that's the equivalent of 100 rifles. And so it could be used to annihilate whole armies during, I mean, early on during the British and German colonial campaigns. But one thing to remember about the history of weaponry is that weapons don't whatever stay in the hands of those who invented them for very long instead they proliferate globally into the hands of one's enemies um, and so when these these two great colonial powers come to meet each other on the battlefield they both have these machine guns these maxim guns and of course you you start to move into uh, the 1900s and uh, the rise of total entrenched bloody wars of nutrition um, where the machine gun sits on the lip of a trench surrounded by sandbags and mows down um, young soldiers as they as they come running to try and try and take take just even the smallest slither of land and you have the death of of millions um, millions of the youngest fittest and brightest 41 million I think it was you know killed during the first world war so you know these these weapons come back to uh, to bite their inventors. I actually have a question I wanted to throw in there um, mm -hmm. after this. So, uh, out of curiosity, do you have a favourite gun? Oh, wow. A favourite gun. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I have a, a favourite weapon, but I think the most disturbing for me is, is has got to be... Um, well, in fact, if I can just broaden it out, perhaps not the most... Perhaps... For me, it's the cluster bomb is the most disturbing weapon that I think has has ever been invented. Some might choose chemical weapons, some might choose biological weapons. Um, for me, it's it's the cluster bomb, and this is because it's invented at um, 
at a time uh, at the beginning of the of the Second World War, some of the earliest uh, cluster bombs are invented by by the Nazis um, to be dropped on on enemy airfields. So they're they're used to be dropped on. Um, on airfields over the UK, actually, during the Second World War, as a means to uh, blow up the the airfields and to stop planes taking off. But also, they had these uh, these amazing set of fuses in them, which meant that some had impact fuses that explode on landing, but some had long delay fuses as well. So they just sit there, so the planes couldn't land either. The thing that disturbs me most about this weapon is that although it was started as an air denial capability to stop these planes taking off as the war went on and more and more bloodshed took place and you know the Luftwaffe was desperate to win the war Hitler was desperate to win the war by 1943 these cluster bombs had been turned on civilian populations and you know these were strange looking weapons one of the earliest ones was called the butterfly bomb and it had these weird wings that came out and it fluttered through the air and it would be landing in trees landing on lampposts it would be buried in the ground as well if it hit the floor and so it could be above you below you or all around you without you knowing it they were ubiquitous and because of these long delay fuse or some were even anti-disturbance fuse so if you touch them it would go off it meant that the terror of the air raid would stick around long after the bombs had fallen in fact some of those butterfly bombs are still being found in the uk today um i think since 2010 there's been 19 of them found across the country and Again, one of the things that I find fascinating about this particular weapon is that instead of banning it for use from that point onwards, the American military find it so um, so useful, um, there's a utility to this weapon, that they develop an exact replica and they deploy it across Korea during the Korean War and across Vietnam um, and, and Laos during, during the Vietnam War. And those, the impact of those weapons are still being felt today. I think it's interesting that when we asked you for the your top, but the the most significant five weapons in history, you didn't list the bomb. Um, you listed the bomber. So mm. move us on to that one. When does the bomber come in? Okay. Yeah. So I spoke about the 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 death that comes from the, the First World War. This this bloody entrenched total war. And I suppose to explore the the real impact of the bomber, we have to look at the American experience, at least, at least in, in, in my argument. And that's because after the First World War, the Americans have a really quite unique reaction to the death that's occurred there. One thing that's often overlooked is the fact that America had around 364,000 casualties from that conflict. But it's a conflict that the United States was never meant to be involved in. The 1823 Monroe Doctrine, the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary, had all stated that the US would not get involved in the, the brutal wars of the European Old World. Instead, it would be involved in, in geographically local wars um it would be the banana wars it would have the small bandit um suppressions these um tiny special force deployments so we're talking nicaragua in 1905 i think cuba 1909 or haiti 1915 you know these weren't these large deployments of forces they were small wars in order to you know keep american business interests intact around the american continent but 
by 1916-17, the United States is involved in this brutal conflict and the body bags start to come home. And there's actually protests in the streets in the US after the war that the United States has been betrayed and there should never be a battle in which Americans lose so many of their best and young and brightest in, in battle. And it's at this point early American air power thinkers start to see a way in which they can show how their new air power technology, which again has not been around for, for very long by this point, they can show the public that this is something that should be invested in. They can show the politicians that air power is the future of war because it offers a means by which you don't have to deploy your troops onto the battlefield and face these machine guns and live in these dirty trenches to hide under the ground. Instead, you can, what they say is you can go over and not through the enemy. And one of the the strategies that they come up with at this point, people like um, Colonel Edgar S. Gorell and Brigadier General Billy Mitchell, they come up with the idea of um, what they actually call it precision bombing. That might be something we think is a, a really modern term, precision bombing. But they actually call it precision bombing doctrine or industrial web theory. And their argument is, is that if you invest in, in, in airplane technology and in bomb site technology, you can go over enemy cities and you can, pinpoint precisely, take out enemy war-making industry. So you can destroy the factories where they make their munitions. You can destroy the oil refineries. You can destroy the places where they make the tyres for their armoured vehicles and so on and so forth. And by doing that, you can stop the enemy from equipping their troops and you can destroy the teeth of your enemy. And that means that if you meet them on the battlefield, they won't be able to fight you as they did in the First World War. Instead, you can move very easily through them without much loss to life. So you can go over and not through. And the Americans invest massively in this idea of precision bombing doctrine during the interwar period. I mean, the, the Norden bomb site, for example, I think it had $1.5 billion invested, about, about half as much as the Manhattan Project. And the idea was to try and make it so it was possible for America to, to strike with this pinpoint precision. They said they wanted to avoid the enemy population and their livelihood. So there was this proportionate, discriminate, um, even some would argue a moral dimension to it. Um, but there was also a strategic effectiveness to it, that they really thought this could mean that you could end wars quicker. Now, this is very different to the way in which the Germans and the British develop their bombing doctrine during this period, as I'm sure you know. Instead, they move towards uh, an area bombing strategy or what is broadly known as a morale bombing. And this is where you explicitly attempt to bomb the populace and their livelihood in order to force them into capitulation, force them to say to their politicians, we do not want this war to go on any longer. So you literally target the morale of a population. And so there's a, a real a real kind of fork in the road here about the way in which bombing strategy and doctrine evolves over this period in reaction to the First World War. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's just, uh, to talk about the impact it's had on the world seems kind of, seems kind of pointless because it is clearly, absolutely, uh, I mean, it, it's changed the face of warfare, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it has been the, the the threat from the air, death from above, has been the the modern spearhead of Western force deployment uh, around the world over the last 100 years. And you think about how far it's it's come since those early days of air power through into to what we have today, and it is it's quite astonishing. It, it's remarkable, um, even within single people's lifetime. I mean, you went from the the Wright Flyer and the Wright Brothers training people like General H.H. H. Arnold, who would become the head of the uh, U.S. Air Force. They they go from training, training him in times like 1912, and he also then becomes the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the point after the Second World War when they're trying to figure out what to do with atomic bombs. So from the Wright Flyer through to atomic bombing, in a generation. Yeah, I've seen 14. You were literally just dropping um, a grenade out of your plane. That was bombing at the beginning of the First World War. It was leaning over the side of your plane um, and dropping a grenade and trying to hit a pilot nearby. It was nonsense. And then fast forward to 2014 and now, and, and the development has just been astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're also entering an age, um, and as, as well as working on the history of war, I always try and look at the lessons that we can learn from history and apply them to the world in which we live in today to try and understand our, our current context and um, maybe try and mitigate some of the threats of weapons that are arising. And we can see how, you know, there's been a wide proliferation. Like I say, weapons don't stay in the hands of those created them solely for long. Instead, you know, that monopoly quickly evaporates and weapons proliferate and we start to see now how all enemies of of american allied and western forces now have some sort of air power capacity you look at um, both state actors but also non-state actors as well in our most recent wars it's been you know special operations forces from the u.s the uk um, from their allies who have been facing this threat from above but from terrorists and insurgents who have got hold of their own air power capacity through actually the spread of drones. Touch on another subject that you spoke about earlier, which is the A-bomb, because that is your other point on this list. And as we all know, the A-bomb was incredibly devastating. But I'm sure our listeners want to know a little bit more about the history, about where it actually started, where it came from, and, and how it was invented, and how we got to that stage that it was actually detonated and caused some of the most unbelievable destruction this world has ever seen yeah i mean it's it's it is a fascinating case of a of a weapon once again isn't it um and it it really is a weapon of it of its time such a, a ferocious um prolonged bloody conflict as, as the second world war sees the rise of of a bomb that can destroy in entire cities 
in in one blow and um it's um you know it's 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 a mix between those who had been working on how to split the atom and you know the energy that comes from that and perhaps usable for peaceable purposes as well um people like Niles Bohr the the, the great the great Danish scientist who actually um, flees Denmark and goes over to New York and you know contacts Einstein and you know these people start to work on um, early incarnations of this weapon and then you mix in this with it becoming a militarized project and the Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer and and the first tests of the bomb and the famous quotes of you know in the in the New Mexico desert of of I am I am death the destroyer of worlds from the Bhagavad Gita and then you move through and we know of course about those seismic events of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki um up to 120,000 if not more dead in Hiroshima um uh, 75,000 dead in Nagasaki just before this as well remember if we're tying it back to the the advancement of the bomber aircraft we'd had 180,000 dead in one night through the fire bombings of Tokyo as well so this is the point in which air power is most destructive and you've seen the the, the burnings of these entire cities regions and, and peoples as a means it's argued to bring an end to the war um, great debates about how and why these weapons were used was it to send a warning to stalin of what would happen in the post second world war world was it to justify the vast expense of these weapons um, or was it simply to uh, avoid you know the, the endless cost of life that would have come from a ground invasion of japan and the debate still still um still kind of going quite ardently about that but for me the most fascinating thing about the rise of the nuclear age is how we move from 1945 through 1946 and into 1950 as well because there's a real debate about what should happen with these weapons next and those who had had their part in trying to develop this bomb now sought to try and control it people like einstein or, or stillard um and they they wrote this fascinating book that's been largely overlooked by history called one world or none and they bring together some of the top scientists of the period and they argue that if humanity is to progress in even the medium term they need to harness this nuclear capability into one organization and come together as one world to control nuclear power and put it into the hands of one authority so that it doesn't spread like all weapons have before across the world and create this threat where nations can destroy each other in an instant and there's some really serious attempts at this i mean president truman invests heavily I've, i remember being in the library of congress and going through the archives and finding a letter between him and um, his ambassador to the united nations clark eichelberger and he states you know i really do think that we can bring this peace to the world i think that we can create a united nations which harnesses the capacity of the atomic bomb um, and that's quite remarkable but at the very same time, those military air power planners who had fought through the Second World War, they were making contingency plans of what would happen if and when this failed. Um, you've got, they weren't specifically given the authority to do so by the president, but they were making contingency planning. So we're talking about, um, you know, 
war plans of, of, of broiler, of off tackle, of half moon. These are the names given to what would happen if they needed to use these weapons again in the post Second World War period. And for them, they were justified when, of course, the Soviet Union under Stalin successfully tests the atom bomb themselves. Um, and as at this point, you get the rise of, of, of the Cold War period. And then from 1948, 49 through 1950, into the 1950s, uh, the birth of thermonuclear weapons and the risk that these weapons are going to spread around the world, you really do start to see how, like I said, uh, any weapon, any weapon at all, no matter how destructive it is, does not stay in the hands of those who created it. I mean, the atom bomb is absolutely terrifying. Out of all of these on your list, I think that's the one I'm most terrified of because the destruction that it can cause can last for a lot, very, very long time. Yeah, absolutely. The the, the radioactive consequences of detonating these bombs. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I I I had the the honour of um, hearing uh, Setsuka Thurlow. Um, one of the survivors of Hiroshima talk about uh, the different intensities of the flash of lights that came from 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 the bomb as it exploded. You know, if you if you were closer, you depending how far away you were from the bomb when it detonated, uh, you'd see a different color flash of light. And, and she was so close that uh, I think she saw a blue flash. And there are a few people who were able to pay testament to uh, to seeing the bomb that close and surviving. Um, and then what happens in the in the streets of Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. Um, watching people in rags of clothes, um, burns, radiation sickness, you know, know, dying by the rivers. Um, It truly is a a, a terrible, terrifying, disgusting and shocking weapon. And it's just uh, a testament to humanity, I guess, that we never, ever got to the stage where anyone deployed thermonuclear war because that would have made that look like child's play, wouldn't it? Absolutely. But going back to this point about dissing ourselves from the impact of war, you you look at the testimony of the pilots, um, people like Tibbetts, who was piloting the Enola Gay as you're looking to drop the bombs over um, Hiroshima. And, you know, they, they find a gap in the cloud. It's... Um, it's it's a relatively clear day, not completely clear, but they can, you know, make visual onto the target. They don't want to use radar because they want to make sure that they can hit the target that they want to with precision. Um, it's the second army base. It's a military target that they're aiming at. And, and it's kind of the myths we tell ourselves about the impact and cost of war, because the idea that you're striking this and you're trying to achieve precision with a, a an atomic bomb to hit a military target, and then the impact it actually has on the ground, I mean, it shows us how how disconnected we become from the impact of these weapons. And and finally, your last one is a very modern invention. Um, and I guess when you look at it retrospectively, a very natural progression, because we've got to the point where we don't need to actually man an, a craft that's raining death from above, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, again, it's not quite as modern as uh, as, as you might think. Um, you can take the history of the drone back again to 1916-17 and this American ambition to achieve uh, a more costless, sanitised warfare by delivering um, bombs from, from high above onto enemy cities or onto enemy troops as well. And the first kind of unmanned aerial system, um, it was named an aerial torpedo, and it was developed... Uh, by a guy called Charles Kettering, uh, an engineer who came up with lots of ingenious things. Um, and the idea of this was to 
uh, set a uh, it was about the similar size to a normal biplane of that time a bit smaller onto rails and then um, it has a a gyroscope in it to, to keep it stable and it has a, a rotor based motor and you turn the rotor the set amount of revolutions that you want this weapon to go um, and then you set it on ra- rails as a crow flies to go into a straight line um, where you think that the enemy target is that so could be an ammunition dump or anything like that and then after it um, gets to the, the point at which the target is meant to be the rotors stop um, this then causes the plane's wings to um, to fall off, and then it dives down. And uh, in the reports, it says it swoops down like a falcon onto its prey. But I mean, in reality, it, it twisted all over the place, and it didn't work at all. And it was never used in battle because it was completely useless at this point. But the ambition was there—the ambition to remove the human from warfare to send the weapon by itself over a long distance and to strike your enemy far beyond the line of sight and not see what happens on the other end. And then you start to see this technology develop over the last 100 years. You see you know, different incarnations of it tested during the Second World War. Um, you know, They called them drones when they were testing them in Norfolk in 19, 1944. You know, Joe Kennedy Jr., the... Um, older brother of JFK, was based at RAF Fairsfield in Norfolk, where they were sending these gutted-out B-17s and these Liberator bombers, um, packed full of explosive with video cameras on the end, to go and try and strike the um, B-weapon sites on the French close at Mimiac. Um, and so you start to see experimentations with them then as well, and then again through the American century, until we get to a point where probably in the first Gulf War, you start to see drones with their, their cameras on, helping pinpoint targets for cruise missiles and for, um, you know, the, 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 the artillery fire coming in from some of the American um, warships that are off the coast. And this then starts to merge through the 1990s, and drones themselves are no longer just directing the missiles as they come in, but they start to be merged with the missiles. And it means that with more ever more advanced uh, computation technology, ever longer range motors, uh, ever longer range transmission and control technology that comes in through you know satellite navigation systems, integrating GPS into the drone, it means that you can then send these these systems thousands of miles away to be controlled from an area that's near the battlefield, but with the pilots controlling them via satellite and fiber optic link all the way back in the mainland of the United States, over five, 6,000 miles away. And so from this very early incarnation back in reaction to the First World War through to the wars we have today, we're now able to deploy force in a very sanitized manner, one that sees almost zero risk to um, American and allied military personnel as they deploy pinpoint precise missiles onto an enemy to hunt to kill, um, whilst troops are, are, are never in the uh, in the firing line where we go from here what do you project happening next where do we go next um i think that if the history of weaponry has taught us anything then like i say it will be a world in which every hostile actor has the ability to produce and deploy drones um onto their enemies 
um, but also onto the civilian populations of their enemies. And this may sound futuristic. It may sound fantastical um, and you know unlikely. But off the back of you know, I've recently been doing field work in uh, in the African Sahel and in the Middle East as well, and looking at um, the use of drones by Houthi insurgents and rebels, and we're already seeing that this technology quite sophisticated technology, not just ones that you can buy over the internet of these small quadrocopter drones, but we're talking drones with a a thousand mile range are being supplied from state actors to non-state actors, such as the Houthi rebels, and then being used to target airports. So from the south of, of Yemen, they're being sent to target airports in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Uh, oil pipelines in Saudi Arabia, the infamous Aramco strikes from late last year. And so they're able to strike. These non-state actors are able to strike their enemy over thousands of miles and strike the urban centers of, 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 the, of their, of their home and capital cities. And if this isn't a kind of disturbing revelation about warfare and what the future holds, then I don't know what is. And if we look back through the history of weaponry, we can see that there is, there is just endless precedent for this of these weapons that gifted one actor superiority over a, a short period of time then falls into the hands of their enemies and it really comes back to haunt them. Um, so I wanted to add a point in before we finish. Um, it's to do with um, the air power and the idea of this drone. I know going back is is quite annoying, but That's it fine. triggered it triggered something in my mind about uh, Unit Seven Three One and their experimentations during the Second World War of biological warfare and using balloons to go over the United States and basically kind of you know burst and then disperse this biological disease or whatever they put in, into into the balloons and it kind of just triggered this moment in my mind about the whole idea and how similar it, it really is in the progression of it yeah i mean it's it's interesting that that particular example takes us back to japan right um because if you want to hear about more disturbing examples of this in a, in a modern context of course you know you go back to the idea of a, of a balloon raid sending these these balloons uh, some filled with gas or biological agents over to the united states to cause mass fires or you know the outbreak of of of, of disease um if you jump through to um you know the 1990s but back to japan you start to see how one of the um, most inventive terrorist organizations called um Shirikyo, that were a kind of doomsday terror death cult led by this figure that thought he was a jesus christ slash buddha slash savior called ansari who had recruited phds uh, candidates and scientists um into his, into his fold, had a fascination with technology, um, and started experimenting with earlier drone technologies in the 1990s to fix them up with chemical or biological agents into these ventilators that would be tied to the bottom of the drones and then send them over to the major cities of Japan in order to sow, you know, death and destruction onto those below. Um, in the end, these, these didn't work that well, uh, and instead they went with the infamous uh, sarin gas attacks on the Tokyo subway, where they took sarin liquid onto the, onto the Tokyo subway, filled in bags, and then stabbed them with umbrellas and let the gas release. And that killed 13 and injured 5,000. But the, the intention 
was was there in order to combine these these new technologies with uh, deadly biological agents and you know just before we we um we had this outbreak of uh, of 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 covid-19 one of the things that was most disturbing in uh, in china that i've seen recently is how african swine flu was spreading through pig farms in the country and one of the things that um we think it's local criminal gangs were doing or organized crime they're actually taking infected pig meat and tying it to drones and then flying it into distant farms to infect other farmers pig stocks and there's a number of reasons for this it was to either drive up the price of meat or to take out the competition or to help benefit those who had loads of frozen pork supplies so that the price of frozen pork would go up because it was less chance it was infected or to make it cheap to sell to the criminal gangs so they could sell it into the different parts of the country um as and pretend it's uninfected meat so the spread of of disease um from the air is is not new um but it's something that we definitely see uh, sustaining into the modern period i would love to just carry on from this from you we've already mentioned uh pope urban and the crossbow um we outlawed as well things like dum-dum bullets but then you have mm. gas in the first world war what do you make of these attempts to police new weaponry and how do you make or how do they even try and make distinctions between one invention and another i i still haven't answered this question and i have to be honest it was uh, the original question at the heart of my my phd uh, quite a long time ago now when i was thinking about why are certain weapons deemed to be unacceptable in warfare and others deemed to be moral and, and ethical. You know, why do we ban chemical weapons, biological weapons, dum-dum bullets uh, that tear the insides out of people and can be, you know, um, built in within uh, infective agent that kind of rots the insides um, or, you know, blinding lasers or gas? Um, and, and the answer that you get every time is that it causes... Um, unnecessary human suffering but then you look at those that are deemed to be moral and ethical and they are things like things like the drone we can come back to the drone you know they are seen as proportionate president obama would always say that they are they're proportionate they're discriminate they're part of a just war simply put drones save lives they're pinpoint precise and they can take out an enemy target um without having to once again you know kill the population around them you don't have that unnecessary suffering um but i i'm not entirely sure that that i buy it instead it, i always would come back to this argument by um the late professor nicholas renger who uh, who recently passed away um but was a great thinker on on war and wrote the book just war and the international order and instead he would argue that these attempts at arms control that were decided by the great powers about you know which weapons should be banned from war and which shouldn't always favored the great powers it would always be the latest most high-tech weapons that would be the ones that were acceptable and then any weapon that was perhaps less or, or had got into the hands of one's enemies could be deemed as unacceptable um, and therefore always giving the great power the hegemon the advantage to to be able to to keep the global order to keep the status quo and to keep their power in the world in essence there's always a reason 
why something is banned and something is allowed to sustain. And remember, if something is to fall in line with just war theory, is to be pinpoint precise, um, is to be proportionate, then it has to be incredibly technically advanced. And so who is it who has the ability to create those kind of weapons? Well, it's the most high-tech and advanced nations as well. So, again, it just gets me raising questions um, about weapons, history and um, war. Uh, the depth of your knowledge is just astounding. Um, and thank you so much for coming on to share it with us um, and give people an overview of weaponry. Uh, interesting, but absolutely terrifying. Don't you reckon, Alina? No, I completely agree. It's uh, For me, some of these things, I don't know, they might bring up a couple of nightmares on tonight, but we will shall see. But thank you so much, James. That was absolutely amazing. No, thank you both for having me. I, 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 it's been uh, great to talk about these uh, these weapons, and like you say, uh, slightly uh, slightly disturbing. I did a, an interview recently where someone called me a, a disturbing fellow, so I can take that. Join us tomorrow when we will be marking VE Day. Uh, we will have a podcast for you with Annabelle Venning um, about her book, To War with the Walkers, where we look at six siblings um, who all experienced the Second World War in very different ways. We will also be bringing you a panel show about VE Day and about the final days, weeks, months of the war um, and different perspectives of it. And we'll also be discussing whether to use the word commemorate or celebrate. Um, It's going to be really interesting. um, So don't forget to join us. We will also be going down the pub as ever tomorrow evening, uh, which means that you can listen to us and uh, several historians and enthusiasts debating this week mankind's greatest achievement. Once again, um, it's probably going to be total chaos completely hilarious and fueled by quite a lot of gin and beer. And then this weekend, we bring you Bobfest. We are so excited um, to be spending the entire uh, May Day weekend uh, talking about Band of Brothers. On Saturday, we bring you a programme featuring James Holland, uh, Paul Woodage and screenwriter John Orloff, who was responsible for writing episodes two and nine. That's Day of Days and Why We Fight, two of the best episodes. Uh, And we'll be talking about the history behind the series. On Sunday, we'll be talking to the Easy Kids. That's the children and grandchildren of the men who have been immortalised in Band of Brothers um, and who get to watch their relatives' war happening in front of them um, in a big budget TV series. That's really interesting. And then Monday is the big one. It is our cast reunion. Something like 15 or 16 of the actors from Band of Brothers, uh, they will be discussing what it was like um, on set. They'll be telling us about funny moments on set. They'll be telling us about boot camp. But they'll also be talking about the responsibility um, that they also felt to the veterans and in terms of commemorating their war service um so join us for all of that um it's going to be really really interesting and a lot of fun in places too don't forget that you can now become a patron of history hacks for as little as a dollar a month all you have to do is go to www.historyhack.podbean.com uh, it's very much appreciated and will help keep us going in the aftermath of the coronavirus there now follows a public service announcement i'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.